And, you know, the thing that we, that happens to us in rehabilitation is that sometimes we're so busy in educating and informing and blowing ourselves up. And I know how to do this, that we actually miss the fact that we've disengaged the person. So what happens is they go up to the front desk, they follow our instructions, they schedule two times a week for the next four weeks, and then they proceed to no show that next experience because they knew they weren't going to come back, but you know, whatever. I don't think this is it. Doc, can you send me to somebody else? Once in a while, a guest comes along and we get off on a tangent. You, you can tell. I just dig in and we just start going back and forth. And it's just good conversation. Today's episode is, uh, well, it's one of those. Uh, excited to bring him on the show. Been uh, trying to organize it for a while and uh, glad to have him on. Just a passionate clinician, educator, and researcher with more than 32 years of experience in neurologic and geriatric PT joins us today. Uh, to get inside some of the thought processes that he teaches. So Mike Studer is on the program today. Very excited for, for you to learn from him because I was, I was excited to, uh, to learn with him as we converse. So you, you're, you're going to dig this episode. If you like this show, you're going to dig this episode. Uh, clinic owners, would you want to add 290 bucks per patient every quarter? Of course you would. Remote therapeutic monitoring. Maybe you've heard about it a little bit, but you're thinking, I'll get around to it. There's a couple of reasons why you should be getting to it now. Improve patient outcomes, ease provider workload, turbocharge your earnings. These are all good things. Kickstart with RTM at physiotech.ca. That's physiotec.ca. And how about the thing that you interact with hundreds or thousands of times a day at your clinic? That's your EMR. Well, MW Therapy has an all-in-one outpatient PT EMR with seamless integration of patient portals, marketing automations, and billing all at an unbelievable value. Take a test drive at mwtherapy.com. And while we're talking test drives, where are you going in your career? Embark on extraordinary patient care adventures with Jackson Therapy Partners. This is perfect for PTs who want to, well, they don't know where their roots are just yet. Maybe they want to make a little extra cash before they figure that out. Travel physical therapy, it's a thing. Discover where your skills can take you at jacksontherapy.com. All right, Mike, finally, welcome, welcome to the show. I appreciate your time. Happy to be here. I appreciate your time as well. What, uh, what people don't often know is like, you know, they hear the moment of us talking and what they don't know is, you know, the emails and the text messages back and forth. So I, and I was saying this to Mike before we hit record is like, I rarely need to say no to an interview because I set my calendar up and I give the guest a, a time to choose when they're free. Yep. And then life happens. So I, you know, it's occasionally <laughs> I'd say like five out of a hundred times I gotta change or cancel. Unless when I do, then it's like one one person five times. And Mike was that guy. So yeah. it, it, it's been a while, but we we are I'm excited to talk. We're here. It just makes We're the here. experience that much better that we've been anticipating it. Ramping it up. So, so we got a lot to get into. You've done a lot of different things. First of all, you've been a clinician, educator, clinical researcher. So you're sort of touching on clinical practice, education, research, which is a decent part of our profession. And you've been doing it for three decades, really yeah. fo focused on, you know, the neurologic and the older adult population, geriatric po uh, population in our profession. Um, so that is a long time working in a specific area, but, but breath like you you know you can kind of go wide with education clinical practice and research and you kind of can have a finger you can have a hand in a lot of different things so I, I wanted to go narrow first okay let's talk about dual tasking right all right let's dual tasking is i'm i don't know about you mike but right now i got my phone my laptop my thing and i'm having a conversation but i'm watching my watch so i'm doing a lot of things my yeah this is you can explain why I'm not actually doing those things well. So with that, so, it's multi-doing. So how can therapists effectively apply dual tasking to make therapy therapeutic and also maybe even fun? Yeah, that's great. So first off, let's define dual tasking uh, and let's understand that basically it is the simultaneous operation of two different things you're doing that could be done separately. And if you just start it and stop it right there, uh, then that's that gives us a good framework. Those are measurable tasks that are clearly discrete that could be done separately. Meaning, if I'm carrying a backpack across a room, that's actually just a single task because the backpack doesn't get across there unless I'm walking. Okay, mm -hmm. that's a single task. But if while I'm walking, I take the backpack off, 
and I'm still walking and I unzip it and grab a water bottle out of it, now I'm at dual task. So if we just start with that as a framework, not everything that's being done walking while carrying something is a dual task because in fact, it's just in the background. You're not actually interacting with it. You mentioned you were multitasking. Mm -hmm. So multitasking is different than dual tasking because it's more than two things. And now let's get into your question. How can therapists utilize it? Well, the very succinct answer is this. Dual tasking is done throughout our lives. So we need to expose our patients to it. That's one thing. And the second thing is it can be an extremely efficient way in for us to learn something for the first time or relearn it over again because we take our conscious attention away from it and learn the automaticity, what we call the procedural memory, the movement in the background, the, uh, you know, I could do that with my eyes closed, the motor memory, all those terms that we used to use for it. By subjecting you to a constraint where I've taken my attention away, you can help somebody learn it better. And this is different. I heard somebody in psychology use the term multi-doing. Like we think we're multitasking <laughs> yeah. a lot, right? I'm getting so much done. But right. I mean, you know, and, and I work a lot in creating things, sounds, pictures, videos, whatever. Yeah. And while I'm rendering a video, while I'm saving a video, okay, I got like three minutes. Let me do something else. And I yep. wind up spinning around. So I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I've heard the phrase, I think it was an old hockey coach. And he said, it's like a monkey humping a football. There's a lot moving around, <laughs> but not a whole lot happening. And that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> and, and it's easy to talk about that because the reality, Jimmy, is now you're talking about task switching. Yeah, that's different. So that that is what we talk about in the, uh, you know, in the field of dual tasking, we are simultaneous, but in multitasking, we're keeping this plate up, forgetting about that plate, keeping that plate up, forgetting about that plate up keeping that plate spinning. So it's task switching. Now people can become very good at task switching, but it's not a good environment to learn something in. So dual tasking is a great environment. If you, it's not a brand new novel task for you, it's a great environment to learn something in, but multitasking can be done, but it's not a good learning environment. That's the yeah. big difference. All right. So how do you know when, cause you worked with, you know, we mentioned neural population. How do you know when it's good to go from one to two to one to more than one? How do you, where's that tipping point? Yeah, that is beautiful. And that's where the science is really coming along nicely right now is you use measurements. So you use a timed up and go. It took you 14 seconds. You do a cognitive timed up and go, which is doing the timed up and go and subtracting by serial threes, uh, 101, 98, 95, uh, 92, et cetera. And if you see, uh, an exorbitant difference between those two, then we know we've got somebody that needs this, but are they actually therapeutically benefiting because it is completely destroying their psyche? Oh my gosh, I'm terrible at this. I'll never get good at this. You know, so you look at it by dosage and you look at it truly objectively. Does this person need it? And are they making improvements my intervention, oh, now that differential between the single and dual is shrinking. They're improving. Now I know I'm on to something. And you can apply this, you know, uh, you know, I was asking because your background is older adults and neurological population, but, you know, I'm just thinking pretty much everywhere, pediatrics, sports, where couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a, a self-described geriathlete. I'm into my mid-50s and well into them. And I also apply those uh, matters to myself when I'm playing pickleball, when I'm doing triathlon, etc. So it, it, it belongs well in that realm. Let me just make a couple of quick points. Steph Curry, who we most all of us know, but for the listening audience, I'll tell you, one of the most highly paid basketball players in the National Basketball Association is not the fastest, not the tallest, not the best at almost anything, but he dual tasks before every game because he dribbles two basketballs and exchanges them between hands, between legs, behind the back. Why does he do that? He does that so that he can actually make his handling of one ball in the game completely automatic so that he can make you think he's dribbling in. He backs up and drains a three ball. And if I'm only six foot four in the NBA or six foot three, I need to somehow create an open shot. So tasking goes there. 
dual tasking goes into Simone Biles, losing the twisties and improving her ability to do gymnastics because it becomes automatic again. The more I think about it, the less automatic it is. And I find myself 17 feet off the air and I'm thinking about turning my right arm in. So it applies everywhere. It's uh, the most widely studied element for uh, fall risk is does someone have the capacity to dual task? Because as you mentioned, this is going to come, this is going to come up in, in, in almost everything. Very rarely are we just doing, just move the backpack across the room. We're always sort of doing the second thing. It is our life. Whether we subject ourselves to texting while on the phone or not, there's wow. going to be the dog, the grandchild, the jeopardy question, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever that's going to dual task people in their lives. And if we don't subject our patients to this um, let's just say forced use experience, I can circle back to that, then who is? Then they're going to be left with, I can walk beautifully at the rehab center and why can't I walk here at the house? I need to go back to rehab, right. you know? So talk about forced use. Forced use. So basically you can think about this in terms of forced use or constraint induced. Think about this. If I'm a person with stroke and I have a person recovering from stroke, Uh, and I have an intact left arm, but my right arm is impaired, what do we do a lot of times? We use a sling and we put it around the less impaired arm. What I'm doing with dual tasking is I'm putting a sling around your attention. And I'm saying, you can't use your attention. You have to, your attention's busy over here. So your brain in the arenas that process how do I do a task without thinking about it, those centers have to operate, which means my basal ganglia, my cerebellum, my premotor cortex, my supplementary motor cortex, those four areas, those are called our procedural memory centers, they take over because I'm forced to take over. If your mind's busy elsewhere, you can't be thinking heel strike, single point cane, right leg, heel strike, don't let your knee snap back. And if you get caught up in that, you can't actually relearn how to walk again and make it automatic and getting and, and, and being able to educate and communicate some of those things i mean gosh i'm thinking back to some of my clinical affiliations as a student you watch a really great great clinician they use five words and a student i'll just call myself will use 25 words and I'm, i should be better because i have five times the words it's actually it's it's the opposite yes yeah that is true the when we cue the how we cue, the how much we cue, and the how frequently we cue. We all know that's well studied in motor learning. And what we want to elevate up to is not unintentionally distracting people, but intentionally distracting them. And there's the nice thing that you brought into this, Jimmy, is letting the patient, the person know, I'm going to intentionally distract you on this trial. Try to see how well you can do in comparison to your performance when I wasn't distracting you. I expect it to be lower. Mm -hmm. And when you tell them, I expect this to be more difficult, then, you know, at least they know what you're doing, why you're doing it. I'm doing it so that you can be prepared to do this at home. And what happens? Okay, their performance went down a little bit. They're not dejected by it but maybe their performance stayed equally as good as their single task. They think great, but maybe their performance went up and they think, wow, I fooled my therapist. Hey, grandson, guess what I did today in therapy? Right. I mean, that's, that's so, it's so true. Right. Which, which is, I mean, I guess we just learn this about ourselves and we can use it. Um, You mentioned being a triathlete and I, I, I read a lot, because uh, I'm a, I, I like triathlon because it allows me to be mediocre at three things in one day. And I like my efficient mediocrity. Um, But it's, it's, um, how many times when your coach or your plan says this is an easy day, you go harder. And when it's a hard day, you go easier. It's like, wait, why don't you just do what's actually on the script? And that's just how some of us are wired for some yes. reason. Yeah. 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 And that's right. The psychological expectations for what you, and this is the analogy that you're clearly calling in here, setting some, someone up for appropriate psychological expectations. If they exceed them, they feel great. If mm-hmm. they, below uh, or lowered psychological expectations, if they meet those, then they're not dejected. We don't want our patients to feel uh, that therapy is just the reminder of what you can't do. Right. And that's, that's the problem with a lot of patient engagement. Right, right. All right, well, let's, let's switch topics, but not really. So yeah. behavioral economics is super fascinating. I love reading, you know, Adam Grant and, you know, a lot of like yeah. the, the writers. It, it, 
I don't think I would have picked it as a really interesting topic because the name doesn't sound it, but what they start talking about is. So it's really fascinating. So how can we use, there's concepts in there like nudge, gamification, confirmation bias in physical therapy to sort of bring those in to enhance the patient engagement. We're, we're paying attention to people and we can use these concepts in different ways to actually get more out of them. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, maybe an effective thing to do we weren't planning this, but okay. maybe an effective thing to do for your audience is you throw a term out, okay. Uh, okay. any one of them, and then I'm on the hot seat to tell you how okay. to apply it in rehab. All right, uh, this is completely untrained. <laughs> let's do an easy one or one that comes up a lot, but I think myself included, a lot of people might not know how to utilize it, which is gamification. Sounds oh cool, God. has the word game in it, but how do I yeah. use it? Okay. So there's three big things in gamification. There's levels, points, and rewards, but I'll make okay. it super easy. So the easiest thing is to go for points. All right. So let's just say, for example, I sit somebody down on a recumbent elliptical uh, or a stepper or whatever. And I say, you know, I'm, my goal is to have them do a high intensity intervals uh, training. But if I sit there and say, you're going to need to do this for 30 seconds as hard as you can. And I want you to try to see if you can make the machine go up to 77 watts. They might feel, you know, some uh, cortisol. They might feel some stress. They might mm -hmm. feel some coercion and they might feel like, gosh, this guy, I don't know how hard he wants me to work. What I'll use is gamification though. So I'll say, I want you to just get comfortable with the device, use it a little bit and see how, uh, how it goes. And then once they're 15, 30 seconds into it, I'll say, just take 15 seconds to use it as hard as you think you can. And they record 34 watts. And then I say, okay, uh, take it easy now for 30 seconds. And then when you hit the minute and a half mark, uh, see how hard you can use it. Right there is gamification. They scored 34 watts. You and I both know they're going to try to look at that and see if they sure. can beat 34 watts. Sure. Before you know it, they've taken themselves beyond the 77 watts that I told them I would have wanted to get to, and I never had to actually push that on them. I let them gamify because they look at points. Right. I mean, this is where like Peloton does a great does a great job. Is they're they're measuring different things. Do Do you ride Peloton at all, Mike? I don't. I'm very familiar. I ride my own bike. I'll leave it unnamed so I don't endorse anything. Uh, but yes, I ride an indoor bike and I take a look at, you know, my RPMs. I look at my power meter and I look at all that stuff. And, you know, and that's that's all gamification. They yeah. do a couple things, I think, well, anyway. They do, yeah. you know, watts and they measure distance, obviously, yep. you know, a, a perceived speed. Um, and what they also do is they bring in people. So number one, the classes yeah. could be, they can be live. So you can, social see cohesion. Where, social yes. cohesion. you can see where you rank. And if I'm, if I'm taking a class from last week, it's putting me in terms of Watts where other people were at that point in the ride, in the race. So yep. Yep. in the race. What they also do is they have this thing. I thought it would have taken on a little more. It's called lane break. Okay. So it's, it's a little like Tron. It's like it's like a six lane track, right? It's mm -hmm. like a, it's, like, it's like a track. And the way you switch lanes is your is your resistance dial. So all the way to the left, you go to the far left lane, super yep. easy. And it'll tell you, you you mentioned like in terms of the sprinting, there's three different kinds of things. There's there's gates. You've got to go yep. through the gate. So I need you to be in lane three and hit this gate. If you miss yep. it, you don't get the points. Yeah. There's sprints where it'll be like, I need you to go and do X number of watts before your bike passes through this thing. And then there's tempo where it actually says be between 60 and 80 RPMs, not higher, not lower. Uh -huh. you yeah. won't so it's not just as hard as you can. So yeah. I thought that lane break thing, the option, the feature is kind of buried. It's not yeah. on the homepage as well. But I tried that a few times and I was like, this is, this was one, of, it was one of the yeah. better gamification things that I had seen. Yeah. Yeah. And remember what you're saying there is that people get, remember I told you points, levels, and rewards. Yeah. Okay. So you get to right. be levels. So you get to actually, you're qualified now to race with the elite racers. Right. So that's a level. And if you think about it in rehabilitation, how do we apply it back? So we also like people that have streaks and I'm sure they do that okay. in Peloton, right? So sometimes I actually used to say to my patients, okay, uh, let's see if we can get you on a fall free streak. And every time you come in to start the session, hold up the number of fingers that represent the number of falls you had since our last session. And they were very prideful coming in yeah. zero. 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 And they, oh, and I say to them, hey, that's nine days in a row you've gone without a fall. So that's another way of gamifying. So it's just, 
looking at streaks and that can be done in incontinence, um, you know, in so many different ways. So then anyway, gamification, we've somewhat tackled there. We can move to All another right. one if you want. How about nudge? What's nudge? So nudge is actually making a choice more geographically present or temporally present, making it more likely for you to choose it because it's right here, right now. So I walk out of my workplace and there's a bunch of people exercising out in the courtyard. I don't have to drive. I don't have to swipe a membership badge. Uh, I can just walk right out there and it's available. It's a track that's close to my house. Nudge is easy, readily convenient. And an easy way that people think about this in their own lives is the doctor says, you need to start eating more healthy foods. And you go to the grocery aisle and you see, look at nuts and seeds and et cetera. And you completely have all this paradox of choice, choice, burden. You don't know what to choose. Right. But it's nudged if it's already in your pantry and you see it nicely labeled nuts, seeds, and chips and et cetera. But it's even better. What happens if you go to a party or somebody else's house, no matter what the occasion is, and there's already foods out there on the table, you're nudged into consuming something healthy because it's present, right. it's immediately available, it's there. So nudge is something like this. I'm going to give you a home exercise program that's built within things that you do in your life. You tell me what you do and I say, oh, when you stand up from the couch uh, on a commercial break, do five repetitions of sit to stand. It's a nudge. It's right there. It's easy for you. Yeah. yeah, that's a good, that's a good use. And it's, I think it's good that we're talking about this just before Christmas when I will be at parties where there will be things that <laughs> they wouldn't be there in my house, right? Yes. Because they are right there. They're geographically right there. And it's, yes. it's so easy. We get caught in that. All right. The last one of our impromptu sort of uh, batting practice okay. is uh, confirmation bias. Okay. So confirmation bias is something that can be used to our advantage or our disadvantage in rehabilitation. It has several things that go into confirmation bias. One of the things that we like to look at that's a sub-subject is the halo effect and the horns effect. Okay. So confirmation bias. Oh, they must be the best physical therapy clinic in town. They've got seven locations. I want to go there. Confirmation bias I think I'm going to have a great experience because they're popular, their parking lot's full. That's, again, confirmation bias. Their people are all dressed in the same uniform. Their reception staff was nice to me. All of those things resonate within the halo effect of the confirmation bias. Because I think these attributes, then I automatically associate attributes that haven't been earned to that entity. My physical therapist all automatically seems like they're giving me better information if they are a well dressed. The reception uh, talked nice. Receptionist talked nicely to me. I found the place easily. Mm. The therapist brought me back on time. Oh, that's what tells me they're a great therapist. Then, oh, that was my best experience yet. I feel so much better after that. That's it's amazing. It's amazing how these things work. Have you ever heard how Red Bull, when they were trying to launch, how oh. they used confirmation bias? <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's an interesting one too. And, and see, that's the thing. There's so much placebo effect that goes into oh that though as well. Yeah. Did you yeah. hear the one about the cans? How they use, so the idea was this was using confirmation bias in public. Okay. So they were at this music festival somewhere, right? And they were trying to give their cans away. But what that does is says, well, if it's free, how yeah. could it possibly be? So they didn't want right. to do that. Yeah. So what they did was their marketing team took a bunch of their Red Bull cans poured out the Red Bull, okay. took cans, crushed them, whatever, and they put them in the garbage. So while people were walking around, they were saying, this must be good because look how many doing people, it. everybody's already had that. And it re imagine though, trying to pitch that, imagine you're a budding marketer who understands confirmation bias. You're smart. You have a background in psychology. And you're like, so here's what I want to do. I want to pour it all out and throw all, throw it away and throw the cans in the garbage because I think that'll make people like it more. Yeah. Your marketing director would look at you like you're insane. Yeah. That story's been told and it's like, gosh, yeah. I would fall for that or I would be susceptible to that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that comes in line with frequency bias. And I know we don't want to go off on another term, but frequency bias or the, the Bader-Meinhof effect. Remember, Whatever car you just bought recently or whatever pair of shoes you just bought recently, you automatically start seeing it all oh, over yeah, the yeah, place. Yeah. 
So that's frequency bias. And now if you see that Red Bull can and you see it over in that trash can, now you start, you don't even realize it. You're starting to look for it. Oh my gosh, there's a banner. There was an ad for it. I saw that came up on my social media feed. They're everywhere. Before, you weren't paying attention to it, but now as soon as it came on your attention radar, you see it everywhere. And that frequency bias is a complementary concept. It's wild, right? I mean, yeah. even, and, and these things still work. They're still present, even if you are aware of them. That's why they're biased. Yes. yes, this is true. Yep. Yeah. And that's what makes it so fascinating. And the ability to apply it into rehabilitation right. is one of the things that I think we talk about motivational interviewing. We talk about patient engagement. We talk about collaborative goal setting. We talk about autonomy and all these things. And all of that can strengthen the therapy experience. And why wouldn't we want it to, you know? So that's the thing is if, if you're giving great therapy, but somebody has a negative confirmation bias, a horns effect that detracts from their outcome and your reflection, their word of mouth, et cetera. So we need to leverage these things so that our therapy experience is given the credit for what it's truly due. Yeah. It's why, I mean, if I was going to, I'm not going back to school. I've done that too many times, mm. but if yeah. I was psychology is definitely, I sort of like, oh. I just study it amateurly yeah. and I just think it's. Fascinating. I think when I was younger, I thought psychology was like, was like, there's no way you can predict what people do. And I think psychologists would say, we don't, that's not what we do. Right. We just look at patterns and how people act. And then we try to work backwards to figure out like what causes that or why, what might cause that to happen yeah. and how and can we utilize that. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Cognitive behavioral therapy says, this is your pattern of thinking. Can we neuroplastically help you diverge that stream into another tributary so you don't follow down that same pattern of thinking? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you mentioned uh, at least once or twice in there, and I know it comes up a lot, especially yeah. with the, the audience, is fear. It's a common mm -hmm. barrier in recovery, right? Even even just to get someone to maybe even come to your clinic sometimes. How long, how many times they must have overcome fear before they, uh, they'll even see you. So how can physical therapists better understand this thing that is probably going to be present often, yeah. fear, and address it with their patients to get those better outcomes? That's a great question. I love the fact that you've brought that up too. For me, I think about the omnipresence of fear, and I think about the fact that it's fear of re-injury, ACL, fear of incontinence, fear of falling is the most widely studied. Um, you know, fear of making an error, which can be again to the yips, the baseball player, the golfer that's hitting a putt, the gymnast that's up in the air, fear of making an error. And then we also think about, you know, fear of, um, you know, a disease process, dementia. Oh my gosh, I forgot where I parked my car twice in the last month. So we think about fear of all these types of things. And that's a broad spectrum across six. The first part of your question should be answered as number one. Physical therapists need to improve their skills in recognizing fear sure. and opening the discussion about fear. And it can be extremely simple as much as this. And it's, it's in the, the realms of vicarious experiences. When I've worked with people similar to you going through the same condition, they've expressed to me a degree of fear in terms of their mobility. Do you find yourself fearful as you move across your home and walk in comfortable places. And you could just start it like that. If we don't talk about fear, then it becomes the early 1990s when we weren't supposed to talk about pain. And then all we did was talk about pain. And then people became addicted to opiate medications about pain. We need to at least be willing to talk about fear so that we can help somebody recognize it's actually a normal sure. uh, human experience. So, I mean, have you have you read Chris Voss? He was a former oh, FBI hostage. Mm -mm. So, oh, so he was a former FBI hostage negotiator. And the amount of times I talk about him on my podcast, you would mm. think that he sponsors my show, but he okay. doesn't. But I would take <laughs> sponsorship from Chris. So he essentially said that the name of the book that he wrote was called Never Split the Difference, Negotiate okay. Like Your Life Depends on It. I thought it was a book about negotiating, but it's not. It's about a lot of the things that you're talking about. So what he'll say is, the reason the book is called that is he's like, if I get called for a bank robbery and I'm on scene, I can't be like, hey, you have 10 hostages. Why don't you kill five and I'll take five and we'll call it a day? He's like, no, <laughs> I can't do that. So neither should you. So what he'll talk about is things like tactical empathy. And you just okay. displayed that, which is 
it's you know people i've worked with people just like you i'm not i'm not accusing you of having right, exactly i'm empathetic that this might be a thing and i've opened the door for now them to walk through yeah that's it and his famous line or one of his lines is it sounds as if or it might be or it comes across that you are ex that you're um you know reluctant to try this and what that does is it leaves them an out if you've ever yep. been in an argument with a spouse or a friend, you got to leave them an out, right? Give them a chance to be like, well, that's actually not what I'm saying. You're, you're trying to put me into a corner because when you put someone into a corner, they don't like it. Yeah, Sounds as if, actually, no, that's not true. Okay, I'm just trying to figure out what that is. And it's amazing to listen to a, a hostage negotiator, why that would be valuable for clinicians, but yeah. it's terribly valuable for clinicians. Tactical empathy. I'm learning this. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's it sounds like good. such a like an oxymoron. It's like tactical is very forward yeah. and aggressive and empathy is very heartfelt and compassionate right. but he's like he's because he's like a lot of times i was just talking to a guy i've never met on the phone and they are having the worst day of their life right now yeah. the yeah. fbi is outside and you you know this isn't going to go well so yeah. you know i could threaten them but what's that going to do yeah exactly so I, I need to understand i'm also not going to give you a helicopter and 10 million dollars it's not happening i'm sorry yeah I can't do it. so it's i need so to good. make a connection i need to make a connection to figure out what makes this guy tick so I can try to help them make their own decision to walk out the front door with their hands in the air. And that yeah. is every chapter also, it's just a well-written book. Every chapter is like a story about a bank robbery or whatever. And then boom, how do I, what did I take from that that you can take? And it's a lesson. So it was really real, yeah. well-written. I love that. I'm going to definitely look that up. You said Chris Voss, uh, because I'll tell you, Earlier this morning, I had to go through one of those mandatory educational things that we all have to do for our employers, and I had to go take a class that was online uh, on, you know, basically de-escalation, workplace violence, and etc. We are just talking about the same exact thing, and you think about this in a burgeoning, developing relationship with me and a person that I am committed to rehabilitate. I want to demonstrate things that bring them into the relationship, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm here. And so all those motivational interviewing and active listening things placed into an environment of awkwardness of, I don't know, is this person, do they know what they're doing? Are they going to be able to help me? I'm looking for a reason to either engage or to bail. Do I want to schedule more visits? And you want to give them every opportunity to say, uh, I feel like I see you. Is this right? Am I seeing you correctly? Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and then the other part of your question, we talk about fear. We have a lot of science with how to combat fear now, and it's not through ignoring things, right? Correct. So our science for combating fear now largely uh, comes into acceptance, commitment therapy, and habituation. And you could call it exposure therapy, whatever you want to call it, but we in rehabilitation, we know it best as habituation successive approximations, small stimuli of that same threatening uh, environment, situation, person, or condition, small stimuli that don't actually provoke me uh, are healthy so that I can normalize my response. Yeah, you mentioned uh, fear of falling being probably one of the most prominent, especially with older adults. In the stuff, in the work that I do, it's often uh, feared more than death, and that's public speaking. Mm. Oh, and I heard someone sort of reframe because a lot of times I'm standing there in the wings with someone who's about to go on stage. They do not. They want to have spoken. They don't want to speak. They want to be <laughs> done. So then what do we do? We rush through it. We sweat. We get all the physiologic responses. And I heard someone recently and it changed how I sort of prepare people for this, which is, hey, are you nervous? Like, again, never mention pain, never mention nerves. But now we're like, are you, are you feeling nerves? You feeling anxiety? Yeah, I, I am. And a lot of times, again, the worst advice to give someone in a stressful situation is, hey, relax. It's like, yeah, just ignore ever, it. Does that ever Suppress work? Suppress it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I heard this person say is, listen, you're feeling anxiety, and I understand why. Like, this is an abnormal situation, right? Um, you wouldn't be feeling anxiety unless, unless you kind of cared about how you're going to perform out there. So that's great. So I'm, I like where this anxiety is coming from. And they said to try to treat it like judo. And judo is famous for, like, I'm not going to... I'm going to use your energy against you, right? I'm going to do I'm going to do like the Miyagi. I'm just going to do a couple moves and your energy is actually going to be countered. And they said, "Take I, I don't want you to try to get rid of that energy, that nervous energy because it's probably not going to work anyway." Yeah. So I want you to use it. 
So I want you to go up there and I want you to use that energy, but see if you can control it like judo and that sort of like, you know, Hey, can we use this? Can we use this fear? You're paying attention. This is a big deal, but that's why we're here today. We're here for this and we're leading into it. So it's not just, Hey, we talk about it and these words heal. That's not what we're saying. Right. We're saying that this is part of the process, part of the larger yeah. process. Yeah. And what you did there is you normalize it is that's a, an experience that most people for their first time as they're a novice in speaking in public should experience. That's right. great. Yeah. And then B, you leveraged it. And I love yeah. that. That's, that's I, great. I get anxious because I'm worried about the performance. I'm like, sh- especially I'm like, shoot, I'm supposed to be good at this. I'm supposed to get on stage, be really great at this. Now, if yeah. I screw up, what does that say about what kind of person? It's because it's tied to your identity, right? Because yeah. a lot of times I was coaching up scientists or researchers and it was like, hey, you just did the work. Like I, they want to hear from you. Yeah. But I'm, I'm good at the work, not good at the speaking. All right, well, let, let's tailor your talk. This is why like, I need you to call me like a month before your talk, not 10 minutes before your talk. <laughs> let's tailor your talk around what you're excited to talk about. Let's, yeah, that's let's great. put that at the top of the queue and then... Then you'll before before you even notice that you're nervous up there, you'll be talking about things you like talking about, and that's yeah, why you're in good. the audience. You do such a nice job of helping people, uh, you know, speak passionately without feeling, uh, you know, um, I guess frightened about the setting, the environment, and the well, audience, etc. I want to know behind the scenes because I've never wanted, done one of these. These are one of my. Mm-hmm. This is on my bucket oh, yeah. list, which is mm-hmm. a TED talk. You did a TED talk, yeah. and I'll put the link yeah. to that in the show note. Like, how sure. did it come about? How they? I'm I'm interested in the prep process because yeah. again, I'll tell people all the time you're going to go give a 90 minute presentation at CSM and you're putting a couple hours of preparation into it. I'm like, I got news for you. Ted talks are typically, I think 17 minutes or that's what yep, they try yep. to tell you. And you have a clock ticking in front of you. Yes, you do. Right. <laughs> and then I'm like, and you're going to wing it, but this person's doing a hot skilled 17 minutes and they've likely put months into it. So pull oh, yeah. back the curtain. How'd this work? Yeah. So, um, I, I was able to engage in a TED Talk that was hosted at my own hometown. So that was good. That's easy. I don't have to travel, etc. I knew, I think, six months in advance that my talk was going to be accepted. So you make an, a, uh, you know, an application and you're accepted. And largely, there's some luck to do with that. But if your theme is commensurate with the larger theme of that TED Talk, that's going to be helpful as well. Once you get accepted, then at least my experience is, you are given an opportunity to work with the coaches, which are the producers and the hosts of the TED Talk. And so you actually formulate your talk. You come in, present it in front of them. They've got all the cameras out there and they're sitting as though they're all in their director's chairs, et cetera. And they're putting you on the spot to see how you do in the quasi environment. Uh, and then they give you direct feedback right there. And then you right come there. back and do it again. And then you come back and do it again. And it shapes itself up nicely. You get the automaticity to it. You have enough repetitions. You have comfort with the stage. All of that is, is you know, but at that point, when I gave that talk in 2020, I had already been talking professionally since 1994. So I don't want to say it ever sounds easy because it's yeah. a different stage. But I'll say two things. Number one, I had 26 years experience going in. That's great. But number two, the quote is misappropriated to Abraham Lincoln uh, most frequently and to many others. It's, you know, give me a day to talk about something and I'm ready right now. Okay. Give me an hour to talk about something and I need two hours to prepare. Give me 15 minutes to talk about something and I need a day to prepare. You know, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the whole thing is that you're going to talk impromptu, unstructured, you got all the time in the world. That's one thing. But literally, Jimmy, I probably put 25 hours of practice into practicing that speech for 15 minutes. I was satisfied with it. Um, but I'll always look for rooms for improvement. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And, and, and that's the funny part is people will get a 90 minute block at CSM and I'm not knocking our profession. This is, this is everywhere. And the funny part is, and this is what I, I like, I want to grab the person, whoever the people are that design CSM. I'm like, I need 15 minutes to tell you why I think you're doing it backwards. Here's why. <laughs> so in radio or, you know, when, when, when FM was a little stronger than podcasting now, right. Yeah. The morning show led the radio station because they do more of the talking and they knew the audience was a little more hyper-focused in terms of a larger audience. 
So if you are a budding radio guy like me, you want to get some minutes on the morning show. You want to get some exposure, yeah. right? Yeah. So instead of me just saying, hey, I've got a great bit, Mike, you're the morning show host. And you go, all right, Jimmy, like come in tomorrow at 730. That doesn't happen. No way. Because Mike is like, the reason my show is great is because I have these hurdles that I want the best to show up. If you've got something. So you're like in the hallway, you're like pitch. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Hey, uh, Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey, something just happened. Here's the thing. And here's what I want to do. And da, 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 da. I need yeah. 15 minutes. I pitched. I told you how much I need. Mm -mm. I pitch. You're doing the math in your head because you know the audience so well. You're like, I can give you three minutes for that. Yeah, sure. That's exactly right. <laughs> you're pitching to Lauren Michaels. Do you think you're telling Lauren that you need 12 minutes? Not a chance. You are pitching. No. and he'd, Because time is the currency. Yeah. And they're saying that is good. That's not 20. That's not 90 minutes. Good. That's yeah. 12 minutes. Good. So it amazes me when we apply for these things. And I understand there's a logistical element to it, right? We want to fit as many things in my, my, my way though would actually give more people an opportunity to talk at the same amount I think of time. You're right. Yeah. Which is what do you, cause I've done presentations where I've submitted, Hey, I want to talk at your, at your, at your um, event. And they've gone great. You need, you got 90 minutes. And I'm like, I can't, Without stretching this so far that I break this rubber band, I can't yeah. make this 90 minutes. Yeah. It's just, I'll just be repeating my, I would be going in circles after minute 42. So right. I'm like, I need, I need 32 minutes to do this. And then I yeah. could do 15 minutes of Q&A maybe. Right. But they're like, you have to fill 90. And it just blows, it breaks my heart. Cause I'm like, give someone else the microphone. I don't yeah. need 90. Yeah, that's so good. And so I'm going to timestamp this as, you know, December 14th of 2023, when I'm hearing you for the first time make this pivot of how we do CSM. And I'm just going to watch to see what year it actually becomes your model. I love that. I so. I've spoken so many years at CSM and I really like uh, your effort there because I think you're right. We could get a lot more programming in. Same time, uh, same cost. Oh, that's good. But yeah. it's also, are you familiar with Parkinson's law? Uh, Parkinson's law? I'm not. Wow. It's, okay. Yeah. Parkinson's law is the time it takes to complete a task will expand or contract based mm -hmm. on the amount of time you're given to complete the task. So oh, it's like yeah. if you tell your kid you got a week to, to, to clean your room, they get done on day six, hour 23. Yeah. But if yeah. you say you don't clean that room in the next 24 hours, you got 24 hours, they get it done in 23 and a half hours. Yeah. And that right. goes along with like, if you give me six months to write a talk, I'll do it in the yeah. last week. I mean, how many times do you, do you go to CSM and someone says, well, I was putting my slides together on the plane. And that's cute. The first hundred times you hear it, like, <laughs> dude, I paid to come here. Like a lot of right. money and effort. Yeah, and I'm right. hanging on your words. So, yeah. and, and so my talk, not to pitch, I didn't think I was going to pitch my talk, but I'm in yeah. the Academy of Science uh, or sorry, education uh, and research. Yeah. Hang on. Research. I just gave like several. All right. I'm in research. I'm with Sheila Schindler Ivans, who is a oh, researcher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's like, I think you should come talk here. And I'm like, Sheila, walk me through this. And she's like, You yeah. have people who know stuff. I go, Okay. And she goes, But they don't have the skill. It's not their primary skill to explain the stuff yeah. everywhere. So yeah. you do all this work, you get published. And that's your end zone. You're done. And then you just go back and receive another kickoff, right? Yes. No, you're, you've hit the end zone. And now it's time to kick the extra point, which is how do I kick this extra point, which is the knowledge into the stands. But if you're not given the tools, the training and time to do it, how can we fault researchers for not doing it? Of course, they're not going to do yeah. it. They don't have the tools for any time. So I'm going to go teach people in however long I have. Because Sheila said, well, how long do you need? I was like, I don't know. You haven't given me my task yet. I don't know the <laughs> audience well enough. So I want her to keep pushing me before yeah. in between now and CSM. What do they actually care about? I can go pontificate on communication theory, yada, yada. But if that's going to fall on deaf ears, I don't want to say it. Yeah. So we're working together to satisfy her because she's a researcher. And then I'll say, yeah. okay, you're my, you're the middle of my bell curve. If I satisfy you, I'll satisfy as many, you know, That's however good. many I can. And if I recall correctly, she's at the University of Wisconsin, right? I believe so. 
Yeah. So she already does a great job translating because I'm pretty certain that I get an occasional her, newsletter, newsletter from her. Yeah, she's yeah, very, yeah. Very she does that. a great job with that. And I think that'll be exceptional that you'll be able to complement that uh, so nicely. I'll look forward to attending that uh, if I have uh, have the opportunity. And, and I'm going to give you 21 minutes for it maximum right Good. now. Good. See? <laughs> think about that. If yes. I say I'm going to teach a really great lesson that someone is also going to be able to digest, because if I, this is the this is the analogy that I that I say I could be the most efficient, cost effective third grade teacher that's ever existed. I could teach mm -hmm. the whole damn syllabus in a week and a half. Not yeah. a kid in the room will understand what the hell I'm saying, right. but I've done it. So the goal of communication is not to have communicated. The goal of communication is to achieve understanding for the audience to achieve understanding, mm -hmm. and that means you say something. And 60% of the room gets it. Yeah. 40 didn't. So, okay, let me, I'm seeing some looks on your faces. Let me say this a different way. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm seeing a couple, let me come one on one to a couple of you. So, that's one to many. If you're doing one to many, could you craft a message where a lot of people get it the first time? Yes, it's called a TED Talk because yes. you've refined it, refined it, refined it, refined it. But the thing about mass communication now is, I mean, when did you do that talk in 2020? Yeah, January of 20. Mm -hmm. Ballpark, how many views has it gotten? Uh, ballpark is probably only something in the neighborhood of like twelve or 13,000. I, I, I introduced it at like one of the worst times that could ever well, be done. <laughs> watch it, I it, got re it got introduced in March of 2020 after doing it in January. It's like, okay, <laughs> you guys are all on to different topics right now. So, you were, you were yeah. competing with Tiger King. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which it is was, different. Yes. But, but, you know, I, I, I work with a lot of organizations, help them launch podcasts or YouTube channels, and people will say, yeah, we're getting, you know, 500 downloads a month. And I'm like, go to your local theater, right? Because it's also specific, right? Like yeah. most of the stuff I do is healthcare. Go to your local theater in your town that holds 500 people, and then picture 500 people, 500 of the right people, like 500 mm -hmm. physical therapists or 500 neurophysical therapists. They're listening, reading, watching every month. So it's like, and, and the funny part with especially YouTube is that thing's got 12,000 views now. Yeah. It only takes one little nudge on that ridiculous exactly. algorithm for that <laughs> thing to become a hockey stick. And next thing you know, it's got yeah. a million. It's what yeah. I was reviewing my YouTube data. I, I did not, I, I pushed off and, and resisted YouTube because I'm a radio guy and I just want yeah. to do the voice, right? <laughs> now my buddies are like, you got to do, it's just YouTube, right? Yeah. I got 1,500 views on one video a couple of videos last night between one and two o'clock in the morning. I cannot tell you why, but yeah. that is not what I would have guessed in the last 24 right. hours. I would have had a bunch of views, but I did YouTube for six, eight months with nothing, 10, 12 views. And then, it, then one, one thing pops it's Netflix yeah. and chill. It's I find a show. Oh, what's that? Now I go back and I binge the first 12 seasons yeah. that didn't pop. So it's, yeah. it's, the internet's wild with that. It is. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. But you know, something else that fascinates me about our conversation here is you talk about being able to read the audience and then, uh, you know, reposition according to the faces you're seeing. I think we actually need to have some way of doing the same type of thing when we're doing a remote continuing education. I mean, Jimmy, right now, I, I, probably give 40% of the day long or as small as three hour long webinars that I give will actually be delivered from the very chair that I'm sitting in right here in Las Vegas, Nevada. And not being able to see all of those faces oh, across that screen. Because if I've got my PowerPoint up, I need to pin my video so I can only see my video. I can't see. The other day I talked to 1700 people on a webinar that I was delivering unmuted. That was a three hour webinar. Uh, I talked to 1700 people across the world on that, but I didn't get to see any of them. So it's very difficult for me as an engager, as a person that likes to interact and see, it's very difficult for me to be able to see, am I hitting this message? Right. Okay. I mean, I'm getting flooded with questions. That's good. That's one objective sign. I can see that I'm engaging people and I look at the fervor of the questions. Yeah. They're interested. They want to know more, et cetera. Right. That's great. But sometimes you can just hit an audience uh, of individuals at a different sector or a different country and their approach is not to ask questions. Right. So I'm like, uh, this is going to be hard for me to stay engaged here for the next seven hours and 15 minutes. How do we do that? So there's a thing that I 
coined. It's called yeah. empty, empty room syndrome. Okay, so, talk to me about it. So I would teach bartenders, uh, supermarket checkout counter people, car salesmen, how to become broadcasters. Uh, you would mm -hmm. find radio people everywhere. They need to be people. And the idea was in between Pearl Jam and Nickelback, you would say something witty or funny, right? You would try to interject in between songs. And a lot of times what I kept seeing people do, different people, so it must be a thing, right? Psychology, yeah. is they kept trying, they, they, would, they would hit the punchline, their zinger, mm -hmm. and then they'd hit it, they'd try to hit it again. Or oh. maybe they'd go around the block a third time. I called it going around the block, and I still yeah. left somebody, I forget who. Sure. And I had to remind them that if what you said was funny, they laughed, you couldn't hear them because you're in a room by yourself talking into a yeah. microphone, and they're out there. You're not, if they didn't laugh, you saying it a second time ain't going to fix it. Not and if they did laugh the first time, you just ruined it by saying it a second or a third. Right. Time. So I would call it empty room syndrome, but that, that killed, that, that hurt me as a guy who interacts. Same so as you were yeah. saying this, I was nodding laugh. Here's how I solved it. The, the budget was not going to let me have a co-host. I was the afternoon guy. Afternoon guys yeah. are notoriously solo didn't yeah. say anything and there was always a there was like six or seven colleges around where i was in radio for the longest in northeast pennsylvania so mm -hmm. i would put out the word for interns all the time i will teach you whatever you want i just need you to stand there for a couple hours and hang out with me and there I you go i would have a cycle of interns who's going to be on there it literally was can you make eye contact with me and if i say something it was even better if the person didn't just laugh all the time because i had to yeah. earn it yeah. And it's amazing what eye contact and body language can do. Even me. So you mentioned COVID. I did everything just audio. And then yeah. COVID sort of brought about everything Zoom and Teams and this. And then I figured out how to hook up my audio equipment to this camera thing and just making eye contact with you here yeah. and you nodding. I'm not wondering, am I boring him? Is he bored? Does yeah. he want to hang up? Are we done? I didn't have to worry about that anymore because I could good. see you smile or make eye yeah. contact or 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 when you want to interrupt, you know, oh, oh, oh you're, you wave your finger and you lean in because that's what people do. And it's amazing how our brains are wired, but it's also not amazing because we're yeah. animals and we're wired this way. Oh, so that's right. Not weird you know, at all. Yeah. And that's the thing is that I think we don't teach this in physical therapy school because across the things that I've done, continuing education, I've also been an academician uh, on a few different uh, realms. And I don't know that we're doing that education in physical therapy because we have to right. cram so much content in. Are we actually teaching the people that are going to be representing our profession to be communicators, to Damn. be able to read the nonverbals, to be able to pause, to wait a second, you just asked way too many different questions within one paragraph for this individual. Read the nonverbals because some people, if they're not receiving you well, they light up. And some people, if they're not receiving you well, they turn it down. And you got to be you, able to know that. And what do you do? So funny. Thanks for the radio segue and the setup. So I'm yeah. piloting this in 2024. And because you're in education and we're recording, yeah. why not just yeah. do a real thing? So yeah. I do my show live at PT programs from now, from, mm. from time to time, right? It's fun, yeah. live studio audience, yada, yada. And we yuck it up, sound effects and whole night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm usually there. If I fly, I'm there the whole day and I'm sitting there going, I bet you I could like teach something. Like, wouldn't that be fun? I don't have a, I'm not an education, but like there's something I could teach. So oh, sure. I'm putting together sort of a module. I don't know how long it's going to be. It's only going to be as long as it needs to be, though. I'll tell you that much, right? <laughs> Parkinson's and, law. <laughs> and, and, and the course that I'm coming up with, because you come up with the headline first, because we learned start with the end in mind, is um, science isn't finished until it's understood. That's the title. Nice. Because it's not done until you understand. So just because just Mike knows it and he said it to me doesn't mean I understand it. You're not done. Yeah. The onus is still on you to read that nonverbal to go, right. I don't, do you understand? Can you, can you give that back to me or whatever? A lot of tips and tricks and tools. Right, the right. sub headline is, so the title is science isn't finished until it's understood. Why are these soft skills so damn hard? Yeah. Because we call them soft skills. They must be easy. And you know, you speak English and the patient speak, speaks English. So where's the, where's the disconnect? It's like, yeah. have you ever interviewed someone before? No. Yeah. Do you know the bad way to, do, you know, are there right and wrong ways to do it? Is there only one way? No. Are there right and wrong ways? No, there's landmines you can step on or things that are better. So, yeah. so my goal is when I do these live things, if I'm already on campus, like, yeah. Hey, could I host an elective for a couple hours where like, yeah. 
I'm going to use Chris Voss as my textbook. Yep. I'm going to yep. use movie clips from the movie Inception or, uh, or you know, Good Morning Vietnam. Like, mm-hmm. why are you doing that? It's because they're highlighting really great skills. Can I use multimedia to teach that? The answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm always resistant to, uh, you know, pitch anything or to plug anything. I don't have a book for sale, et cetera. But on an unnamed continuing education provider site in <laughs> January, I'm actually teaching a course that's actually called the soft skills. Is and it it's really? A, yes, it is hundred percent. And so it's a three segment course that looks at the initial examination, progress examination, treatment, home exercise program, delivery slash discharge management. And we look at those three across yeah. the three courses you can, because you it's can- a passion of mine. You can say where it's from. It's okay. Where is it's it? Medbridge. That's yeah, what I figured. Yeah. When you said unnamed, yeah. you know, I was like, come on. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm doing that. I, I think I go up there and I actually film in studio uh, oh. on January 9th. So it Good probably won't be released until early March or so. And I'm so excited because I've got uh, patient experience where I'm not just talking bullet points. This is what you do. Right. I've actually created... Uh, interactive experiences where we've got models and I actually display, all right, here's how you show vicarious. Here's how you show tactical empathy, those types of things. Uh, You know, those, uh, you know, the analogies of what I just learned from you, et cetera. It's vital, man, because you could know so much, but if you can't communicate it, you know, I mean, I, somebody said it best. You could write the, you could have the greatest song ever written in your head, but if you can't get it out, it doesn't matter. Yep. Doesn't matter. Yep. You got all the ball the, all the way to the one yard line and you couldn't punch it in because you couldn't communicate it. Yeah. Yeah. And related to that is uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So, right. you know, that uh, ability to be able to listen and display empathy, communicate it in a very realistic, non pandering manner. Sure. And one of the secrets I, that I'll tell you that, that I've had over 33 years is somehow. I figure out a way to learn something about an individual that they've told me that I don't put in their medical record. And then I play that again for them either later that session or what really floors them. If I bring that up to them a couple sessions from now, wait a second, you must've been listening to me. How did you remember that my husband and I were going to my grandson's baseball tournament in Tennessee over the weekend? And you asked me about it. Boom. Well, I think there's secrets to patient engagement. I think it was Oprah that said people want to be seen, heard, and understood. And if you can, I see you, I hear you, I understand you, or I attempt to understand. And this is like, and I had my buddy who's a psychologist on once, and I said, pick a topic that healthcare providers mess up or don't get right when treating patients. And he's a psychologist who educates psychology students. Mm. Mm-hmm. At Thomas Jefferson University, so he also mm-hmm. treats healthcare providers at, uh, on campus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and he said empathy and sympathy. And I go, yeah. well, yeah, they're like the same. And he goes, you know how words work. Two different words means two different meanings. They might be the similar, but they're not the same. And he mm-hmm. sort of described it as, I can never have sympathy for someone who's given birth because I, yeah. I have never given birth. I can have empathy for it, but it's got to stop there. Because if I'm like. I know how, oh, it's pain. I know how that feels. You know, I broke my finger once. I will get <laughs> in the face. Let's get it go a long way. Mother be like, you, do, you know nothing. Because I don't. But yeah. I can say, listen, I imagine that's really, really difficult, traumatic, and um, I, I, just amazingly, you know, a lot. That's empathy. And yeah. if you can show, I mean, empathy, the bar is lower. Maybe you do have the same experience as someone, and yeah. that's sympathy. But empathy, we can... That's a skill you can hone. And that's really what he was sort of like really right. pushing and communicating. Yeah. And if you if if you fit a third concept in there, you have a way to be able to take someone out of a potential catastrophization cycle because you have vicarious experiences. I've worked with people that have had a similar experience as yours. It's not the same and you're right. an individual, but here's been my experience. Do you believe that this course that I'm suggesting for you might also be healthy for you? Right. It's worked for these individuals because it actually uh, helps to recognize, put us in the context, but also says, here's how we're going to get out of this context. Here's how we're going to move forward right. with this work for you. Yeah. This is also a com- like the parallels between communication, healthcare, 
Donald Miller wrote a book called Building the Story Brand, where he's like, when you write an ad that tells everybody how great you are, they want to say, cool story, bro, like, good for you. <laughs> but if you write an ad where I'm the hero and that you're the Yoda, you're the guide that can help me become, go from where I am to where I want to go, I'll pay attention to you. So like, yeah. in the classic one that's in plain sight is Nike's saying, if you want to be an athlete, you know what you have to do? Just do it. Just do it. We don't really make sneakers. They don't really sell sneakers. They sell the chance, the path to becoming an athlete, whatever that yeah. means to you, right? So right. it's super subtle and it's like, well, that's a trick. And I go, it is, but it's also not. Because if I meet yeah. a PT and they're like, well, I'm an Ironman and I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. It's like, all right, well, this sounds like it's your story. Where do I fit in your story? Yeah. You know, and I put it in context of relationships, you know, and I try to make it funny and poke fun at myself because that's the easiest way to endear. I'm like, you know, freshman year of college, I, I, I had some first dates, but no second dates, Mike. I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> I told every girl I went out with that I was the captain of the hockey team and I was super smart and I, how great I was on the radio. No second dates. Sophomore, junior, senior year, I asked a lot of questions about them and what was important yeah. to them. And I just listened a lot. A lot more second dates. Why do yeah. you think that is? And when you put it in that context, it's like, well, obviously, I go, patient cares the same way. It, yeah. it, it's another human that's hearing you. Yeah, that's exactly right. I love that uh, experience uh, that you relate back to your dating experiences as well. And, you know, the thing that we, that happens to us in rehabilitation is that sometimes we're so busy in educating and informing and blowing ourselves up. And I know how to do this, that we actually miss the fact that we've disengaged the person. So what happens is they go up to the front desk, they follow our instructions, they schedule two times a week for the next four weeks. And then they proceed to no show that next experience because they knew they weren't going to come back, but you know, whatever, I don't think this is it. Doc, can you send me to somebody else? You know, and we're confused Uh, and we say they're non-compliant. Right. Yeah. I've got a terrible caseload. They're non-compliant and et cetera. And that's what my whole soft skill, uh, you know, course is about. It's not about the person. It's about what you're doing to find the individual and, you know, you know, uh, you know, you talk about Yoda, et cetera, and yep. you talk about Nike and, uh, you know, and all of that is in there. Just giving the individual some limitless possibilities of where I can take you, show me where you want to go, um, and let's do it. Let's make this about you. All right, Mike, you ready to play three questions? Let's do it. I'm ready for any three questions. With three questions on the PT Pinecast. All right, three questions from our friends at ATI. They're leading the charge in PT clinical research with more than 900 clinics achieving top marks in CMS's merit-based incentive program. They're the team to join for career growth. Explore opportunities at ATIPT.com. All right, three questions. First one, um, let's go. Fun fact. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Ooh, superpower. So let's go with, I'm going to go with omniscience. Ooh, I'm going to go with the ability to, to know all. Oh, no. I think that, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, because I, and I believe I've used the term correctly, being omniscient. Um, you'll have to check, fact check me on that though. Yeah. Because I think that I can keep myself uh, healthy, safe, help other people around me, help my patients even better if I'm omniscient. So I'm going to go with that as my superpower. Feels like, you know, Professor X, Charles Xavier was a little omniscient. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right, let's look backwards. What's the most memorable piece of advice that you've received from a mentor or colleague? What's something Mm. you got and you were like, this stuck? Okay, so in about 1997 or 1998, I was applying for a position uh, within the hospital organization that I was working and the vice president of the hospital was interviewing me and he says, I wish you all the good luck, good luck that hard work can earn. And I, that has stuck with me and that gentleman remains a friend of mine to today. So I understand from that, there's really not so much of a good thing as good luck. Right. Let's see you earn it. Let's see your work right. ethic. And then that'll put the afforded opportunities in front of you that you think are lucky. So yeah. I think that's that's what I'm going to go with. I heard a quote similar. It was, uh, luck, is, luck is the dying prayer of the man who believes that success happens by accident. Ah, there you go. Uh, you yeah, know, I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Unexpected choice. If you had to completely switch professions, you had to choose a different profession, what would it be? What intrigues you? 
<laughs> if I had to switch right now, it would be sure. different than what if I had to switch? Because I tried to become a major league baseball player. That didn't work. And I can't look back at that now. So uh, one of the things that I really like that you talk about is psychologist. So I probably would look that direction. Behavioral uh, uh, economist would probably be my other things. Because I tell a lot of people over the course of the 30 years that I've been you know, teaching on a continuing education basis is I'm not actually sure how good of a physical therapist I am. I think I'm actually really good at listening to people and helping them become the best that they can be with the tools that they think and the direction pathway that they think is going to take them there. I think that I can help to maximize people, but I'm not certain that I'm a great physical therapist. So the psychology and behavioral economy actually fit nicely for me there. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick another degree, that one would just be fun. But it is fun to just read these books, like like someone oh, yeah. like Adam Grant, which I talk about a lot. I yeah, think rethinking. He makes it very relatable. Like he is yeah. talking about these ideas. Like Daniel Kahneman talks about things, but I mean, he's super high level. I need to like read a chapter, put it down, think yeah. about it, read it again. With Adam Grant, he sort of knows he's talking to people like me who are a little slow. You know yeah. What I mean? Yeah, All right, that's three great. questions. Last thing we do on the show, Mike, is the parting shot. This okay. is the parting shot. All right, parting shot. Last chance for a mic drop moment. It's brought to you by the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. Find them online at orthopt.org. Their profession leading current concepts of orthopedic PT is in their fifth edition. Wherever you are in your orthopedic career, if, you, uh, if you're if you thinking about maybe that OCS exam, this is that roadmap to get you from there to the starting line, all right? You're, it's your job to take the test. They can get you prepared right the luck that uh, that hard work affords you they can do that so find them online at orthopt.org mike what's your parting shot uh my parting shot is i want therapists to think about dual tasking in that context that i framed it about 40 minutes ago as a constraint so that we can tie up your attention and that we allow people to be able to learn things formidably fully and in a procedural manner because we haven't caused them to constantly think about it so i think if you think about it in that analogy that can be helpful yeah uh links to uh to find out more about mike i'll be looking for that uh that soft skills course because why are these soft skills so damn hard on medbridge and i want to see that youtube video pop off so i'm gonna put the link in the uh the the, the bio in the <laughs> okay show. let's see what happens all right Thank you for finally connecting with me after we uh, we hit and missed. We glanced at each other, but we finally did it. It was it was uh, even better than I imagined. And I learned so much. Thank you so much, Jimmy. I appreciate it. All right. They say the best conversations happen at happy hour. Thanks for coming to ours.